0: Well, let's pray before I begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you uh, for how good and gracious you are, uh, that you have given us the technology to be used for your glory and for your kingdom. And Father, I pray uh, that as we continue to worship together, as we get into the word, Father, that we would uh, have a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are because of what you are and what you have done. Father, I pray that you give us uh, what we uh, need uh, to see and give us the ability to hear uh, what you are trying to tell us. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I was preparing for the sermon this past week, I was thinking if there ever was a sermon topic that would attract as many people as I could online, And therefore, wherever there was online access throughout the whole world, I probably wouldn't pick the one today. But because we are preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible, I don't have the luxury of skipping over uncomfortable places. In fact, I would argue that if a preacher or Bible teacher wanted to be faithful to the teachings of the entire Bible, and even the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, they would have to come to those uncomfortable spots. So if you're just joining us this morning for the first time, don't close it, continue on with us right now. Today we are continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk. We're actually getting to the end of this really short book in Habakkuk that we've been doing for about the last month or so. After today, we have two more messages in this book, and today we get to talk about and hear from God's Word on what may be the most uncomfortable topic in church history. That is the wrath of God. In one way, the wrath of God seems like an offensive and false idea made up by preachers or biblical teachers of long ago who wanted to scare their people, into a saving faith in Jesus. The nickname Hellfire and Brimstone Preachers were given to them because in many ways they were hell-centered preachers. As time has progressed in human and church history, and for the most part society has turned into a postmodern mishmash of ideas, the idea of the wrath of God has either become one of two things. It's either incredibly offensive or simply just an idea to be ignored. Even for myself, and many people who call themselves evangelical or Protestant Christians, the topic of the wrath of God and even hell aren't mentioned that often. In a podcast that I listened to just recently, a few days ago, Two pastors were talking to each other about the importance of preaching about the wrath of God and hell, but even admitted to each other that they don't often bring it up in their regular preaching, and in many ways, they didn't know why. Topics like grace, mercy, and even the love of God are much more popular in the evangelical church world, because in many ways, these are feel-good topics, They are, of course, core to the character of God, and yet, as we will see today, they can't be separated from another characteristic of our good God, his wrath. C.S. Lewis, on the topic of hell and the wrath of God, once said these words, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power to do so. And in many, of us, in many ways, many of us would agree with C.S. Lewis. If only we had the power to remove parts of the character of God and the revealed word of God, then we would simply remove the wrath of God and eternal punishment. I even may be tempted to do this because most of my extended family, beyond my parents and sister, don't have relationship with Jesus. But as a Bible-believing and proclaiming church, we don't want to skip this. So as we get into the text today, which was just read moments ago from Kathy, our longest passage yet in terms of length in this series, I want to ask this important question to you right now at home. What do you feel? What do you feel when you hear about And read about a topic like the wrath of God. Perhaps, like many, we like to hear the more cheerier topics like God's grace and mercy, which are never ending and never changing. But, like many of you alongside myself, you woke up a few weeks ago to a story of a man in Nova Scotia who went on a killing spree. And suddenly, we couldn't stop thinking about justice. Numbers of people, innocent people who died, were going up and up and up. The shooting spree went across various communities in Nova Scotia, rural places, much like Cremona. They eventually caught this man, and the two officers shot him dead in a parking lot. You see, what is interesting about this is that there's something that seems unjust about a man being shot to death who killed more than 20 people there is something that cries out in us for more justice. Of course, on an even larger scale, in terms of more murders, people like Adolf Hitler was responsible for the mass killing of millions of innocents of all ages. And yet there was no trial for him. Instead, he shot himself in his bunker. There was seemingly no justice for Adolf Hitler. This is a pattern in the history of our world throughout the whole history, that too often criminals of all kinds and all scales escape the judgment that they so rightly deserve. But even when they go on trial, often it seems like the result doesn't suffice for what has happened. Lives are changed after a husband and father are dead, or a mother and wife. Families are changed forever Rural places, much like Cremona, or urban or suburban communities, have drastically moved from peace to fear forever because of a crime that has happened. Because of this, no kind of earthly justice ever seems to quite fit the crime. So now, this morning, we seem to be in many ways where Habakkuk is. No, there hasn't been a mass shooting in Nova Scotia for Habakkuk. But like Habakkuk, we join with him in complaining about the injustice and the violence around us, in our country and in our world. We cry out in asking God for an answer to injustice around us. We cry out in asking God for an answer for the violence around us. And even in a pandemic, even though we are being frustrated by staying inside, although things are opening up, we still cry out and asking God, How long, O Lord? For Habakkuk, the answer to this from God was the Babylonians, who were the greater evil. In fact, in many ways, the very definition of evil itself from Habakkuk's days And for Habakkuk, he could not believe that this was the answer. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says these words, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Habakkuk had a really, really hard time separating the reality of using evil with the character of God, who is good. In many ways, he thought, how can these two even come together in such a way to punish evil? Habakkuk knew that the injustice and violence needed to be punished in his land. Justice needed to be done. But now with a promise from God that he would raise up the Babylonians to punish it seems as though Habakkuk has been wondering if the Babylonians are somehow escaping the wrath and judgment of God for their evil, the evil that they had been committing throughout all of the lands for a very, very long time. In fact, just a little while ago, God described these Babylonians as people who mock kings and rulers and are guilty while using their own strength as their god. In other words, their strength as the one they worship. How could God let these people get away with all of this evil? Well, it turns out that God isn't letting them get away with this. This is where we start this morning in Habakkuk 2, 6 to 20. If you have a Bible with you, either on your screen or on your lap, we're going to be in Habakkuk 2, 6 to 20, which was just read. As we read moments ago, there are five different woes that we're going to go through. These five woes pronounce judgment on Babylon, and they reveal God's judgment upon any human power that sets itself against the rule and reign of God himself. These five woes will tell us things about God and us. In fact, the dictionary defines the word woe As great sorrow or distress. And so today, this morning, God is placing five woes, five things that should give the Babylonians great sorrow or distress. What we're going to do is we're going to look at all of them through this passage and then see what they will tell us at the end. With us, I want us to understand that they will tell us that every generation in the history of our world will see different kingdoms and different rulers that achieve a little bit of success at times. But in the end, God and his glory will triumph. In fact, sandwiched in between this passage is a promise that says just that. Before we get to that, let's look at the first woe, verses 6 to 8. Says this, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. This first woe tells of greed. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods. The result of this is that the creditors will arise. Instead of preying on others, the greedy person becomes the prey. Babylon, the greedy nation who shed human blood. Destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them will receive their justice. And though Babylon conquers many lands and cities, and builds cities upon peoples and towns it has destroyed in order to perpetuate its name, this name of Babylon will be cut off. All of this work to build up their own name will be for nothing. Let's look at the second woe, verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. This woe tells of the abuse of power. They have plotted the ruin of many peoples, using the image of a house, that is built by unjust gain, God reveals that an abuse of power to the people will backfire. And the third woe, 12 to 14, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We see again this image of building, this time not a house but a city. And the next woe in verses 15 to 18. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame, instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the man who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. There's a lot here. This is the longest woe. Things about wine, which represent greed and violence to others. We'll get, more. we'll get to this more in a little bit. But let's first read the last woe. The last verses of this passage. It says, Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. All right, I was really quick to go through five different woes, 14 different verses. Let's slow down right now and dissect what is really going on here. Firstly, seeing what this says about God himself. Firstly, I think we need to understand that this passage continues to show us the same things about God, that he is just and he is faithful. For Habakkuk, although he was confused about the use of the Babylonians, he perhaps was more concerned that the Babylonians were getting away with so much injustice and evil that they had committed. For a while, Habakkuk almost believed that God was only going to bring justice on his people and his land, and not the evil nation of Babylon. But in his character, God is just, and his glory will prevail. For us, God's answer to Habakkuk reminds us of the limitations of our perspective. To us, it sometimes seems as if the wicked will prosper forever. However, since the Lord uses even the wicked to achieve his good purposes, one day they will surely receive what is coming to them from his justice. And for those who trust in him, walk by faith as we saw last week, they will be rescued. See, the limitation of our perspective uh, happens because we can only see limited things. And this reminds us of our need to wait on God. Remember last week? we were reminded to wait on the Lord, that God will do what he has said. You see, this not only includes the grace and redemption of his people, it also includes that of his wrath and justice. Not just the parts we like to hear about, but also the parts that sometimes we just like to skip over in the Bible. Church, today we need to be reminded that God is faithful. and This doesn't just mean that everything will come with rainbows. But brother, it means that God will bring justice for the evil around him. This justice that will be brought is most vividly seen in the middle of this passage. In verse 14, which is a verse, if you underline, highlight your Bibles, do it right now. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, the wrath of God and the glory of God are so connected because of his just wrath, the knowledge of his glory will be shown. Church, what does this mean for us right now? It means that all injustice in the world today will be brought to justice. It means that God is much more faithful and just than we could ever be. And because of that, we can have greater hope than anyone else in the world. This hope is rooted in the whole character of God himself. And as we end today, I want to remind you of biblical and godly truth. These three words, familiar for many of us. What are the words? The words are, God is love. God is love. You may say to me, we just spent a whole bunch of time reading and hearing about a wrathful God, and now you tell me that God is love? Absolutely. absolutely. But here's the thing, and I want you to hear this. You see, God is love. But notice what this means. It doesn't mean that God is simply loving or wants to love. Instead, he is love. His essence, his character is love. Love, His love is pure because he is pure. That means he is perfectly without sin and perfectly set apart. God is love. But what does this mean for us in particular with how we heard about the wrath of God and his glory? Well, in one sense, this is bad news for us. You see, if God is love, pure and undefiled love then he will not permit wickedness with him in his presence. Why is this bad news for us? What does a loving God have to do with us? Well, imagine with me for one second, you can close your eyes. Imagine if I had a little USB stick and I plugged it into your brain, took it out and displayed all of your thoughts and actions you have ever done for everyone to see. Everyone to see your friends, your family, and strangers alike. How would that feel? If you're honest, you would feel scared because what would be revealed is sin upon sin upon sin. Lying, cheating, lustful thoughts, the list goes on and on. And I am not pointing fingers at all of you and ignoring me. This is me too. We are doers of evil. In the Bible, it actually says in Psalm 5 that God hates all evildoers. So how is God love, and yet the Bible says that he hates? Let me explain this to you from one who enjoys children, loves children. If I asked you if you like children, you would hopefully also say that you do as well. Now, how would you feel, or I feel, if we heard that children of any kind, whether it be yours or someone else's, how would you feel if they were being mistreated, abused in any way? Well, I would hope that you would be angry at this great injustice. Now, imagine God who is love as he sees the evil within human beings. You see, all of us fall into this category of evil and sin. Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.23 describes our state. It says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, we can try and run from this truth, from the sin within us. We can try and seal it up with secrets upon secrets, but God knows our heart. So now we have two options, church. We can either continue to suppress this truth that you are a sinner or that you can feel your sin and the weight it has on you, or or rather, you can feel the weight it has on you and then pursue The gospel. The gospel that is that God, the one who is love, in his love, sent Jesus, his son, to dwell among us, to live among us, the life we could not live as a perfect and sinless man. Then die on the cross as the wrath of God was satisfied, and then rise from that death three days later. This gospel is good news, Good news for the sinner, which means good good news for us all. Our call is to repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus. This isn't to simply get a get-out-of-hell-free card. No, the gospel should not be primarily a fear-motivated message, but rather as God is, a love-motivated message. Friends, if you are listening right now, whether you're Christian or not, trust in Jesus and turn away from your sin. The gospel is about the present and the future. Trust in Jesus. Experience the greatest joy in knowing him and even suffering for him. And remember those three words God is love. And what we've seen from this book of Habakkuk this morning. Is that God will come true on his promises to act upon injustice and violence and evil. But here is this verse again that we need to underline and memorize. Verse 14: For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If you are a Christian this morning, God is using you for this purpose to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And one day the entire earth will know of this. And as Philippians two ten to 11 says, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will happen. But what are we going to do about it right now? My hope is that you will labor to share about this God who is love. And even with glimpses of his wrath, we will see that he cares for us and deeply desires for us to pursue him as he is pursuing us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time this morning to get into your word. Father, there are some parts of your word uh, that are a little hard to swallow. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit helps us see the good news of the gospel uh, through this passage, that we see Jesus, who is interceding for us right now, died for us and lives through us. Father, your gospel is indeed good news. We thank you for this time. May we proclaim it with boldness. May you give us boldness to share this good news. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. Amen.